0: Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. And
1: welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. (laughs) Um, So... Good morning. This is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner and we are talking today about a topic that's also probably on the top of your mind and your radar because there has been recent news in the world of banking and, and today we're discussing, is there a banking crisis? Should you be concerned? And sorry about that. That is uh, my real life coming through for a minute here. So if you are joining in with us today live, we are talking about the recent bank failures and what that means for you, what that means for insurance companies, how do insurance companies compare to banking, um, and really, should you be concerned? What is a good way to protect your cash and your wealth from any kind of economic downturn or type of crisis that could ensue? So that's what we're discussing today. There are so many pieces that we can bring into this conversation. But first, good morning, Bruce, and welcome. Thanks for being willing to have this difficult conversation today.
2: Yeah, it's, um, you know, everything's still relatively new. So we're just trying to bring some light in general on this. And, you know, what's interesting, Rachel, I think there's people out there that are actually bringing some calm heads to this whole thing. And there are other people out there that are acting like this is the end of the world. And I always tell people you, you gotta look at it from what is their motivation? Mm-hmm. Um, and are they, re- is it really the end of the world or is it just benefiting them to, to let you think it's the end of the world? What's interesting is society, depending on how you define it. You know we can go back to Mesopotamia or we can go back to the start of the human race uh, about sixty million years ago has gone through up and ups and downs, but we've gotten here um, and economies realign and people have fear and people have joy and that's kind of the Austrian business cycle, the boom and bust cycle. you know um, if we let everything go to the free market then things kind of even out in a in a less peak and valley situation if we manipulate the money supply like we have tended to do since 1973 uh, when we went, nixon took us off the gold standard i mean it was manipulated before then but it was really uh, changed at that time period then we are going to have much more or many more situations where we have extreme prosperity but that's artificial. And then we're going to have some boom or some bust cycles as we, as we try to even out those, that prosperity. So uh, this is the result of this. And uh, I think we, if we just talk about it in facts, we can bring some um, clarity to the whole situation.
1: Bruce, I'm already excited for the conversation, mostly because I know it's top of mind for so many people. And they're asking questions, everyone should be asking questions. if you're not, you probably aren't um I don't know maybe Aware. you're hiding under the ground or something. <laughs> um, but the other piece of this is you just said something really key, and it's that when there's manipulation of the money supply, you have artificial an artificial environment, so you can have prosperity that seems good, that might not really be that good, and you can have a bust that seems terrible that might really not be that bad and so The question is, what really is the truth of the matter and how should we handle it? So I love that you just brought up that idea that intervention doesn't
3: necessarily bring about a true prosperity, it brings artificial. So anything else you want to share right there,
1: Bruce?
2: No, I just thought uh, people really need to understand that the, the banking industry has the ability to multiply the money supply just like when, I, when i'm talking about the banking industry i'm talking about the retail banks the commercial banks the big seven um whether it's wells fargo bank of america chase the ones that old, own the federal reserve and if you if you're just now uh, <clears throat> uh hearing me yes the federal reserve is not federal even though it says it is, it's actually owned by the seven biggest commercial banks and uh, they get a guaranteed dividend. Um, and they also then try to, what's interesting, it was set up as a charter of um, lender of last resort. That was the, the purpose of the Federal Reserve. But uh, in the, since then, they've actually been trying to um, control the economy. And so it does um it does cause these kind of things. And then they're on the retail level, which is what we're talking about today. The bank we're specifically talking about is Silicon Valley Bank, um, out of Silicon Valley in California, in the San Jose, San Francisco region. And this bank was very different. It was the 16th largest bank in the United States by assets. And if I if I could, I'm just going to go through some of um, the timeline. So,
1: oh sure, yeah, go ahead.
2: Yeah, so January first, um, the bank had 91 billion dollars of of held maturities, um, fixed income that was um, that had a maturity level to it. In other words, it was going to mature into the future. This is key to it. They had 200 million dollars. Uh, excuse me, $200 billion of assets. That's what made them the 16th largest bank. Now, this bank specialized in venture capitalist situations and also um, any other tech companies would get loans from them. Now, it's interesting here that Nelson in his book actually talked about Midland Bank in Texas that actually went through a similar situation because the investors of the bank were in the oil business in Texas. And I, would, I don't know this for sure. I haven't, I haven't been, not been able to find any information about this, but you would think that a bank in Silicon Valley would also be owned by people that were very familiar with the tech startup situation and other venture, venture capitalist situations. So you would think that the people that they're doing business with they have either strong uh, business relationships or strong personal relationships. This is just like the Midland Bank in Midland, Texas happened that Nelson describes where they were basically thinking that the oil industry was never going to be bad. They had a bunch of friends in the industry and the and the due diligence team on the bank the bank directors were giving loans out to oil people that were basically their friends or very close business associates, without doing due diligence, just thinking, "Well, oil will never have a problem; we'll get paid back." And unfortunately, in that situation, it had a problem, and they didn't get paid back. And now it sounds like uh, um, Silicon Valley Bank might be in a similar situation. So the real here's the timeline. So uh, January first, Silicon Valley um, discovers that. Even though they have 91 billion dollars of assets out of the 200 billion, we're in fixed income maturities into the future. And Rachel, we probably ought to—we've talked about this before in the show, but we probably ought to talk about fixed income securities, whether Treasuries, bonds, mortgage-backed debt, so on and so forth. And so, what happens here is we've been going from a very low interest rate almost no interest rate environment, to a a relatively, what we think is high, but it's more normal interest rate environment. So let me just do a quick uh, elementary lesson here. So if you buy a a treasury or a bond and it has a maturity of 10 years, you're going to get X amount of rate of interest, and they're promising you that they're going to pay back at what they call par value. So Mm -hmm. a bond sold at $1,000 today, if you buy a 10-year treasury, they're going to pay you back that $10,000 and interest, depending on what type of treasury or bond it is, they're either going to pay interest along the way, or they're going to pay it at the end. And uh, if you do a 20-year one, you could actually get a higher interest rate. If you can do a 30-year one, you can actually get a higher interest rate, even, even greater
1: the longer they're holding your money, the more valuable it is to them, less valuable to you, less liquid to you. Of course, they're going to incentivize that with a higher interest rate.
2: Correct. So for some reason, as the interest rates were going up, the portfolio managers at this particular bank, apparently, were chasing what we would call in the industry, chasing yield. In other words, they were trying to get a rate of return. So they thought, oh, this treasury... Interest rates are going up. This treasury is good. We're going to buy a long duration. So a treasury that might not mature for 20 or 30 years, except what happened was the interest rates kept going up. <clears throat> and so now if they either have to liquidate the pay depositors who want their money back, or if they want to buy at current market rate, they will have to sell their their, their, their debt instrument at a loss.
1: And also, and s- it's a lower interest rate that they were getting on the long-term bond that they set up. And now now the reason they say, well, let's go ahead and get the higher bonds or be able to pay back our depositors in the case of Sun Valley Bank, they're saying, if we're going to liquidate, those bonds that are paying a lower interest rate are worth less than the new bonds that are coming out that are worth more that are that are um, paying a higher interest rate so the old ones have to be sold at the loss for that reason
2: yeah yeah exactly so let's let's make sure we understand that the 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 par value stays the same so if they hold them to maturity they're going to get the the thousand dollars per bond back however the market value changes so if they go out in the open market and they have to sell it because they have depositors want their their money so they're not that liquid they have to sell it at a loss. Well, what was that unrealized loss? Was going to be fifteen billion dollars out of the ninety-one billion dollars. So they knew they were in trouble for the reserve requirements. So, um, in March eighth, they did a, a they announced a proposed stock sale, and apparently, no one or very few people uh, wanted to buy the stock. So on March tenth, CNBC reported. That SVB, for all intents and purposes, um, well, not for all intents and purposes, they did they failed to find a buyer that same day. The FTC the FDIC came in and takes control because they had fallen below their requirements, the reserve requirements. On I want to point three- out
1: that this. I mean, we say the dates, but this just happened last week. I mean, literally, what the the main crisis that came on the horizon of the depositors and venture capitalists that were um, depositing into the bank, really started March 8th, Wednesday last week. And then by the very next day, Thursday, customers were withdrawing money. Stock fell 60% by the very next day. So Friday of last week, March 10th, they failed after this run on deposits, the regulators took over. I mean, that's a two day window. This We're not talking about multiple months or something that was over a long period of time this happened very quickly and i think that's probably one of the reasons why it's so front and center to so many people's um, minds right now just because it was something that it seemed like it was one of those banks that's too big to fail it was 16th largest bank gigantic bank and this happened very fast
2: yeah i think a reason it happens very fast is is what we all have heard of before it's a run on the bank so when they announce a stock fa- uh, sale on on March 8th people start to wonder why are they trying to sell some stock here
3: mm-hmm. and
2: so they dive into the numbers more and all of a sudden it gets out especially what's interesting i was talking to the a vice president of one of the insurance companies we represent and he said the president of the insurance company that that uh, we represent was actually telling him this is probably the first Bank failure, because bank, banks do fail, uh, the first bank failure that actually happened in the social media um, uh, day, you know
1: that makes and, sense, yeah.
2: And so the word travels fast mm-hmm. through Twitter, through whatever you know Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever. so it travels very, very fast.
1: Well, and Twitter was a big player in this too, because the investors or the depositors in the bank were tweeting. I can't remember which day it was, but it was in that two-day window. They were tweeting about the concerns that they had. And I mean, that can spread like wildfire. And unfortunately, when there's a panic, that causes problems rather than correcting the problem that you're panicking from. So it almost became a vicious cycle for that reason.
2: Yeah. And then... um that that happened on 310 and now 312 another bank out of new york called signature bank was also taking over taken over by the fdic and probably what happened was people started getting a little jittery with what happened with silicon valley bank and started looking at their own bank and their assets ratios and and signature signature bank of new york had people then depositors coming in and wanting their money back, thus less, thus less, lessing their reserves. They probably had the same type of assets that uh, were below market value. And so they had a hard time taking or um, actually paying back their depositors. So on, on the 12th, the same day that Signature Bank collapsed, the U.S. Uh, Treasury announced it will cover all of the SBC depositors. Now this was a very interesting thing. So normally they cover $250,000 per account, but they came in and said, we are going to cover all deposits. Now these, I haven't read everything on this.
1: Let's just pause for a second there. What's interesting is that yes, they're normally supposed to ensure FDIC is insuring up to 250,000. But what they're saying is there's a lot of accounts at, um, Silicon Valley bank that were much higher than that 250,000, where the depositors were going to lose out on the rest of their deposits beyond the FDIC limit or cap. And then they're saying, well, we're going to go ahead and make sure all the depositors are whole completely, even if it's beyond that threshold.
2: Correct. And, um, you know, some people would agree or, or or about this. Other people would disagree, depending on your um, your belief in like Austrian economics and the boom and bust cycle. But what was interesting, that most of the depositors in this bank, because it was a tech startup and a venture capitalist bank, and I, I bet you all the listeners, or many of the listeners had never even heard of this bank before this actual collapse.
3: I hadn't. And the reason, I mean,
2: <laughs> well, I hadn't either. And the reason for this is that, this is a bank that is actually really dealing with tech startups that are going to have much larger deposits than just 250000 and venture capitalists that are going to have. So most of their depositors were well over $250,000. That is, that is different than the, um, the other bank that recently became, um, shaky Western Alliance Bank in, uh, in the Phoenix area where 50% of their depositors had uh, $250,000 or less.
3: Mm. So
2: why this is important is if it's, before they came out to have this um, Banking Term Funding Program, BTFP, before they had that then, people would would have thought that anything over 250,000, they were gonna lose their money. So the, Uh, Fed came in and said, we're going to give you this bank term funding program, and we're going to cover all depositors. That helps keep the bank more solvent because now people aren't rushing to the bank because it's like, well, if you're going to guarantee my deposits, why do I have to rush and take it out? So that gives the the, uh, bank time to reorganize. You're
1: going to slow down the crisis or slow down the hysteria.
2: Correct. And not only in that bank, but Signature Bank, Western Alliance Bank, and there were five other banks that were put on notice. One of them was in Kansas City, Missouri, which I'm from very familiar with called United Missouri Bank Share. And they were another one. What was interesting about that when I did some research, just in 2015, they were one of the most financially stable banks in all the United States oh, wow. um, in, the, in the top five. and. By the way, my bank actually emailed me um, this this week from Missouri, also, and wanted to reassure the depositors that they were in the top five of all financially solvent banks in the United States as far as the criteria goes. So and that that's based on all, Moody's, all right? The Correct, credit.
1: Moody's. So Moody's is a credit ratings firm, and they will. Um, rate banks according to their stability and one of the things that happened in this whole process with silicon valley bank was um which day was it on march 8th moody's downgraded silicon valley banks rating from what they called stable down to negative and so that that is what's that rating is what's behind a bank saying we're on solid ground or we're on a shaky foundation which is based on the investment structure that the bank is using behind the scenes, behind their, their deposits, their liabilities and their investments.
2: Correct. And, and, um, not to be too cynical here, but Moody's, Moody's was approving everything during the great mortgage crisis too. And they, uh, they were sleeping behind the wheel at that time. Also, um, and you're going to hear more and more banks be put on notice because of Silicon Valley Bank, because Moody's, the FDIC, other regulators are going to come in and say, hey, we want to see, you know, your books um, more than what they're, they do on a regular basis. Well, and I think so you customers, more of them.
1: I mean, the consumer is going to want to know more. I mean, the question really then becomes, if the reason why, <clears throat> why Silicon Valley Bank was Excuse me, my throat doesn't bother me. Was having the major problem was because their bonds were long-term bonds that were then uh, at market value dropping, and they were not able to sell those bonds at a profit or at the price that they would purchased them from. They had to sell them at a loss. Well, the question then on everyone else's mind is, well, how many other banks are in the same situation? Is my bank doing that? What's the investment structure of my bank? So. I mean, I think that these are legitimate questions, and I think this would be a great time. I should have said this at the beginning. I would love if you're listening live or if you're listening after the fact to drop in any questions that you have about this. Um, we'd love to be able to hear your thoughts, your concerns, um, and specifically what's on your mind regarding Silicon Valley Bank, why it happened, bank failures. Are you concerned about bank failures or a banking crisis in the United States? So um, go ahead, Bruce.
2: Yeah, so I think um, there's a little bit of a distinction there. It, it, they also didn't just be put on shaky ground because of their investments. That was a big part of it. Don't get me wrong, but before that, they were all also having trouble, and probably because as the economy has slowed down, once again, that was that's what the Federal Reserve is trying to do as they as they as they uh, as interest rates rise. Um, economic activity slows down. So if you have startups that have borrowed money from the bank, and now they're looking for a second round of funding to get to the next situation, or they can't pay, they have to to get a second round of funding at a higher interest rate, so their profitability goes down, or they cannot make their payments now Mm -hmm. because the economic funding or economic situation has gotten worse in the United States, so i i believe probably a lot of the the loans were um in arrears or maybe even in in default Mm -hmm. and so they didn't have the revenue coming in also you got to remember this was a unique situation it's another reason why diversification is very very important in any kind of economic activity you had so they were basically working with tech startups and and venture capitalists yeah and and people could say well venture capitalists can they can actually do a lot of different things except, except just tech startups. But I bet you venture capitalists in Silicon Valley were probably doing tech, tech startups. And mm-hmm. this, brings in a, this brings in another point that we talk about with building your war chest um, or having cash on hand, these venture capitalists and these SPACs, special ac- acquisition companies, that basically are taking in investors' money, and then they in order to get a return, they feel like they have to go out and deploy this money well when you're when you feel like you have to deploy the money you're going to deploy it you're going to have blinders on and you're going to deploy it in in investments that you would normally not deploy through because of some um, red flags from due diligence so anytime you have a situation where you're anxious to deploy money, you're more likely to make mistakes. I mean, if, if our listeners are thinking about it in their own life,
3: mm-hmm. you know,
2: they're probably thinking, oh, I'm overcoming fear. I got to get this money invested. I got to get this money invested. Or another way is you make a, uh, a purchase that you didn't particularly think about making and you get buyer's regret. Like you're walking into a Sam's or a Costco and you see this big screen television sitting there and they're enticing you to buy it because it's sitting there and it looks great. They have all these colors on it.
3: All right, Bruce, we are good.
2: Yeah. I don't know what's going on with my internet service today.
1: Okay. So I filled in a couple blanks here. You were talking about, um, making poor decisions when you needed to deploy capital immediately, or you mentioned buyer's remorse and that big screen TV, and then Mm -hmm. everything kind of went um, down from there.
2: Yeah. So, so if you look at it from your own personal um, way of your thinking, other human beings are actually making these decisions too, and they're under stress and so on and so forth. So bringing regulators in and then the, the federal reserve announcing their um, bank term funding program, I wanted to really clear this up. What they're allowing these banks to do now is they're giving loans up to one year. Okay, so this is not like they're just bailing them completely out. I want people to understand that. And the reason they're doing that is they're allowing them to pledge their securities at par value instead of at market value. So in other words, Silicon Valley Bank does not have to sell their securities, their debt, their, uh, their debt, their debt securities at a loss to make whole depositors. So that's helping their reserve requirements. But eventually, they'll have to pay the um, bank back. They're also they're also taking um, they're seizing the assets. So I want people to understand that the investors are not being made whole in these banks, which is. Frankly, I, I agree with that. The investors were the ones who messed up either through omission or they, they purposely did bad investments. Um, Now you might say, what do you mean purposely? I mean, because they were um, so excited, they were blinded by their exuberance. Mm. Um, So the investors will be hurting this Now, I could argue that the investors won't be hurt the way they should be hurt because they were probably huge depositors in the bank too, which are going to be made whole in that situation. But that's what the banking term funding program is. It's loans up to one year and they can pledge their treasury debt, mortgage-backed securities against that so they don't have to sell them at market value.
1: So Bruce, this um, can take us, we have um, Keith Wilson is on LinkedIn, so you may not see him um, he mentioned that he was here this morning. Glad to hear people talk starting to talk about the real issues. He shared this to another social platform. Um, I appreciate you guys so much. Awesome information. And then he, I asked a question while you were out for a, a moment. I mentioned that we're going to be leading the conversation towards if there's this challenge in a bank. How does that relate to the banking industry, and how does that relate to life insurance? And what questions? can we answer about life insurance versus insurance companies and the financial stability? So we we want to talk about that and reserve requirements and really what that looks like compared to life insurance companies versus um, banks and what the failure rates look like over time. Um, we also, then I asked, do you think banks should be held accountable in a situation where they possibly have made these decisions that have led to um led to a crisis, or should they be bailed out? I mean, there's there's two sides of this. So Keith has added, added to that. He said they, he thinks they should be held accountable, hold them accountable, definitely mismanagement. Um, and We've got some other commenters, but I just wanted to, to address that idea because you can look at it in two ways. The FDIC and the Federal Reserve can be looking at this and saying, okay, if we don't step in and make the situation whole, what other challenges could there be in further banks is the trust in the banking system going to falter so that it causes uh, an imploding effect or if they, okay, so that could be a a ramification of them possibly not stepping in and making this situation as good as possible. But then we also have to think about what's the unintended consequences, who's actually making the situation whole. I think it was, I find it a little bit um, tongue in cheek that uh, they biden and fdic specifically said no losses from either bank's failure will be borne by the taxpayer Uh, they seem to make a big deal about that and um
2: it's and that's according to the release that's that is true the banking term funding program um is only a loan and the fdic is funded by the banks now Mm -hmm. i think we've talked about this before fdic And I haven't checked on this in a couple of years, but they only had about a quarter in the reserves of the FDIC, a quarter of a percent of all the deposits of all the banks. Now, that doesn't mean that all the banks are going to fail at one time and they can't cover it. But the FDIC is saying that we will cover if we have to. Of course, the way they would cover it is by doing more um, government debt backed by the treasury. And that just simply means the treasury debt is actually backed by the full taxing authority of the United States government. So if that ever came to that, then yes, we would be paying per citizen because we would be being taxed. They're just making sure that everybody understands that this bank term funding program is a loan to these particular banks uh, to get them more stable. They're gonna have to pay the loan back. So um, the investors, if they don't pay the loan back, they're going to they're gonna lose their initial startup investing, which I don't know what it is in California the reserve requirements, but just to start a regional bank in Missouri, you have to put up to, uh, to, to about $20 million of your investors' money to, just to start the bank. So it's, it's not a small sum of, of money that the investors could be losing.
1: So Bruce, let's talk about the reserve requirement at the bank um, and how that applies to life insurance companies as well. and Just what that means for the stability. I mean, with with the fractional reserve banking system, there's a requirement that the Federal Reserve requires banks to hold 10% of reserves against their demand and checking deposits. So the bank is not holding all of your money inside their vaults for you to take it out when you desire. And that's why a run on the bank or people asking for all of their deposits back causes a problem because they don't have all of that reserves available to provide. Um, I don't know how much else you want to say about that, but I'd like to just kind of contrast that with what's going on in the insurance industry.
2: Yeah, so, you know, we've done history of banking before and it really came about because people had money or things of trade, whatever you want to call it, uh, whether it's precious metals or or whatever, and, and they could be easily be robbed. So people decided, well, if I if I set up a bank that's secure and I'll be responsible for it and I'll give you an IOU, then we will actually you will actually have to pay. It. Us to protect your money. Mm-hmm. Well, what they soon noticed was people weren't coming back and using their money. And so, so they started then making loans with the people's money because they knew that all the people weren't going to come back and get it. Well, then when this was profitable for them, they thought we need more money so that we can loan. And so then, then they started instead of having people pay to protect their money. They actually pay people interest if they brought their money to the bank. So at that time then, they knew that a certain amount of people would not come and get it, get their money. This evolved into the Federal Reserve and saying that you could have 10% of deposits and you could have the rest of the 90% loaned out. Now, in actuality, uh, I don't believe most banks go down to 10%. I think 20% is more from what my research is, is more likely. But I've I've talked about this on a podcast before. I went into my bank several years ago and asked for $5,000 in cash. And all the lights went off, like uh, sirens almost. Uh, Excuse me, sir, I'm gonna have to get a manager. And they came back and they told me they didn't have $5,000 to give me. And most people presume that that bank vault is full of money for the requirements but the requirements are also electronic and it's called mm-hmm. the federal funds funds rate and banks will actually loan money to each other overnight to, to actually keep their reserve requirements stable and uh, uh, contrast this to life insurance companies every time premiums come in they're actually taking that premium and putting it into uh, investments But unlike unlike, um, banks, they actually don't have runs on them like a bank would have it um, because these deposits or premium payments are actually for a product. So you're buying life insurance. Yes, by contract, you can access the cash value and they have provisions in the the contract Contract that says they can delay cash value up to six months if they have too much money flowing out, but they but they don't anticipate that because they historically that hasn't happened because you're buying a product, but that reserve requirement with the top ten mutual companies is about is seven percent higher than what they believe their mortality expenses and other expenses are going to be for any one given year, and it averages 7% for the top 10 banks. And for all banks, I'm sorry, not banks, insurance companies. And for all insurance companies, um, that, is, that is the 7%. For the, some of the higher ones, some of the ones we use, they actually have 14% above the reserve requirement to pay off their mortality and expenses for that, that particular year. Banks are, excuse me, the... The problem with that Silicon Valley bank was, is that they were going to have to sell securities to actually pay people that wanted their money back. Insurance companies don't have to do this because let's say an insurance company does have a lot of people that are worried and they want to get more cash, whether by withdrawing from their cash value or from lo- getting loans from their cash value. hmm they don't have to sell their long-term securities. Why? Because every month they have new premium coming in because people are paying for their life insurance premium. And so they haven't bought the treasuries with that particular money. It's very liquid. So they can then just use that money that came in that month to satisfy the requirements of the withdrawal or the loans so they don't have to sell at a loss. So that is a big difference between the two.
1: And also, doesn't the life insurance company use what's called a bond laddering uh, process where they have bonds that they're always purchasing new bonds with new money and, and they're different maturity dates. So they're not all long-term bonds. They're, they're, some are different interest rates because they've purchased them all along the way and they're always continually um, coming to maturity and then being able to use that money to redeploy into new bonds as well, correct?
2: Well, that is true, but a good bank would be doing that too. So the point is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yes. yes. And the reason they're able to do that at different maturities, I mean, it just makes sense. They're having either annual premiums coming in, quarterly premiums, semi-annual or annual premiums coming in every month. So when they come in, they take some of that and they put it in a new bond mm-hmm. for that particular. So they're laddering bonds literally every month. And so then every month, bonds are becoming mature. But even, even if they don't have enough bonds becoming mature that month, they're going to have more premium coming in so they can just use that as liquid money to satisfy the withdrawals or the or the loans.
1: Yes. So there's um, Keith has a lot more comments and questions in here. We're going to come over to those in a second. Um, thank you for your engagement and for your questions. So I want to point out something that we have talked about for quite a while as well. And it is that Um, we have asked the question and often the question is more valuable than the answer. So I want to, I want to pose that we're not saying this is the case, but could life insurance companies be safer than banks? Here's something that's really interesting. Bank failure is more common than life insurance company insolvency. So you can go to these websites and I can either pop them into the uh, comment section, or you can go look them up as well. So one of them For bank failures, you can look at a a failed bank list, um, www.fdic.gov, and then it's resources slash resolution slash bank failures slash bank or failed bank list. So if you pull up the number of banks that have failed since 2000, which I think is the latest date that I could find on this website as I just did a cursory look today, it's 565 banks since 2000. Now, in that same time frame, if you look at life insurance companies, and we can talk a little bit about this as well, because a life insurance company failing is different than a bank failing, um, and we'll share what what that means in just a moment. If you go to the National Organization of Life and Health Insurance Guarantee Associations, which is www.nolhga.com, and then all the information is facts and figures slash main.cfm dot location or slash location slash insolvency slash order. By and date, so I pulled up everything and I did a quick count. But I can count them on my hands. How many um, life insurance companies have failed in the same time frame since two thousand? It's about forty. I might have miscounted. If I miscounted, it might have been thirty-eight. Could have been forty-one. But it was really right in that range. So if we look at that, banks failing, five hundred sixty-five, or forty life insurance companies during that time frame. What's interesting about that is that a life insurance company. Is has failed on a less um, likely and a and historically less common timetable. Now, with the bank, the banking industry, the FEIC is the insurer of deposits. On the life insurance side, there's the state co- corporate, the state corporation commission. They oversee life insurance companies that are doing business per state. And then each state has a guaranteed insurance fund or called the GIF that ensures that insurance companies are insured against insolvency and it protects policy owners. It's very similar to the FDIC. But what's interesting is that usually when a bank, and this is probably also true in the banking industry, it's usually when a life insurance company is on the verge or the brink of something that looks not good, the insurance industry comes around that company and takes over those policies and makes those policy owners whole by fulfilling the obligations because correct. they care about the industry. Whereas it's correct they're not just going to leave them out there um, to go under. So similar to banks where you can look up ratings on Moody's with insurance companies, you have public data about their financial strength on insurance companies. And that's things like Standard & Poor's, there's AM Best, there's Fitch's rating, and then they also have a Comdex score that's assigned to life insurance companies that tells you the strength of that life insurance company. So Bruce, I'd love to hear if you have any other um, comments or thoughts that you want to add. Just the um, How does life insurance company compare yeah, so, to the banking industry?
2: So um, I'm not an expert in the banking in, um, industry, and I'm not sure I'm a complete expert in the finances of an insurance company, although I've talked to many of the Chief Financial Officers of the insurance companies and the presidents and vice presidents. And the reason that they feel like their, their industry is more solvent than the banking industry is they're, they have a product. I, I, I can't emphasize this enough. So, if one banking or excuse me, one insurance company is not doing very well, and they have all these uh, contracts on the books, those contracts have already gone through underwriting and servicing and and, and, um, and implementation and commissions and so on and so forth. So the upfront costs are already gone from the, that, that book of business. So it's not that bad that that company takes over those assets and thus they're going to take over also the future liabilities of that because they don't have the upfront cost of obtaining that. So that's how they are different than the banking industry where there's not a, there's not a product that a person will continue to fund. They know when they're taking over the insurance company that more than likely most people are gonna continue to fund their product, the insurance uh, contract where the banking industry doesn't necessarily have that because people can just remove the money and go to another bank. Um, So that's why you see a lot more failures. Doesn't mean the banking industry is not made whole from a similar situation. I believe I saw where Warren Buffett is actually looking to take some positions in some of these banks because they have um, gone down really, really low in their stock price. And Warren's gonna take a position in those banks. So um, it looks like they're gonna be okay. I think this is a good time to talk. Joe DeFazio uh, talked about the difference between a mutual company is free to make more sound long-term business decisions compared to a stock company. And this is a really good point here too that Joe brings up because when a stock insurance company is actually chasing a stock price, okay, they have the regulators to deal with for reserves, but they're also trying to keep their stock up because they are beholding to their stockholders, not to the policyholders, where a mutual company is beholding to the policyholders because that's what a mutual situation is. The policyholders actually own the company.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So they're more likely, a stock company is more likely to make more malinvestments. This is what happened to AIG during the mortgage crisis with their derivative portfolio. So. These are all things to consider, not good or bad, but it does appear that the, the life insurance industry is more stable from every metrics than is the uh, banking industry. But we're not saying that the banking industry is unstable.
1: We have a lot more um, comments in here as well. So let's jump to, so Alex says, what law defines what we currently use as money? And he also says, what law defines what is a dollar? And also, I don't yeah. care about the bank building, just the number on the hard drive that says it's my account of numbers I can spend. <laughs> yeah,
2: I, I guess that's he must be a younger person who likes uh, uh, online banking. Um, and I, I agree with Alex. What defines, I don't know, Alex, I'm not a lawyer. I do know that, I, that money or what they consider money is very fluid because I belong to a bartering organization. Before I haven't um, participated in it, but you can actually get taxed on bartering.
3: Wow, so, I did not know that.
2: Yeah, yeah, most people don't know it. There's actually organizations that set themselves up for for uh, bartering, and you get a ten ninety nine. Let me give you a quick example. So that's why I'm saying the definition of money or what the United States government says is money um, is not even what we consider as a medium of trade. Most people think it's something physical, whether it's a, a, a Federal Reserve back note or gold or other precious metal. We think of that as money. But the Treasury Department says that any medium of trade. So these organizations are set up to say, OK, bartering, I want accounting services and I have a I have a car repair place and then there's a restaurant. But, but I'd like to go to the restaurant, but the restaurant doesn't need my my car repair okay so i can't barter between them i can't say hey can i have this meal and the next time you need a brake job come to come to me but what they can do is they can give you credit into the bartering system so you come to them and you say i have so much credit from other people using my um my car repair services they're not they're not changing anything except for barter and then you can then take that credit when I pay you in bartering credit and you can go get accounting services with it. And, the, and they actually get a 1099. So there's really no medium of exchange there. So Alex, I, that might be a cop-out, but I'm telling you that the, what is money as far as the US treasury, it's really not important what it is. It's, it's whether it's a med- you're paying for something with a medium of exchange.
1: All right. So Alex goes on here, um, continuing on the conversation and kind of just some comments to what you just shared. He said the legal tender law, the coinage act of 1965, um, the legal tender law, the coinage act of 1972 section 20 defines what's a dollar coins are physical. That's barter. Um, basically currency and money is different. Okay. So true. Um we yeah. can use anything for money. The currency that's defined as valuable in our country or per each country is going to be set by laws of saying what is legal tender. Um, yeah.
2: Alex making all these great statements. I'm not sure um what they had to do with the discussion today, but not, um, everything you know money and account of the United States shall be expressed in dollars. yeah, I mean. Yes, except I'm telling you, I've gotten a 10.99 that was it was ex, was I guess was expressed in dollars for the U.S. Treasury, but we were not exchanging dollars to hmm. do that. So, um, and then somebody asked about t- tier one assets, and
1: yes, that would be a great time to talk about um, Bowie as well.
2: Yeah, Bowie. Like, what's interesting is we you know we've we've talked about skinny based policies in, on the um, on the show that has a lot of PUAs or a lot of cash value assets. And BOLI or bank owned life insurance is based on more skinnier base. And, and, And from this conversation, it makes sense, right? Because they have to have, their tier one assets have to be liquid. And so it's just one way to have liquid is to have bank owned life insurance with skinnier base policies. So that is really good, but that's because they're looking at it from a short-term situation. They have to give up some long-term increases in their um, cash value to satisfy the short-term um, tier one requirements or liquid requirements. The life insurance companies, um, they have to do the same thing. They have to have short- term tier one type. But as we said, they, the difference is the banks believe they're going to get more deposits, more loan payments coming in every month. The life insurance company knows through mm-hmm. contract that they're going to get more um, capital coming in every month.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: what's I, what I think is fascinating is that the banking system uses life insurance, permanent life insurance with the cash value, for the purpose of fulfilling their tier one capital asset reserve requirements, meaning that it's a safe and stable asset that they rely on using because they know that there's guarantees built into it. And I think that really says something um, to have one industry using another industry's product to make themselves more stable. I think um, we can all learn from that. Right.
2: right. And then Rachel, uh, just tell me when you're, you think we're going to wrap up because I have a list of what I consider calming thoughts today oh, to this share is with wonderful. our wonderful, share with our listeners. Okay,
1: not quite yet. Let's um, see if there's anything else we want to comment on. This. So Keith had quite a few comments here, but let me. Uh, he did say bonds usually perform well in a recession. However, so does precious metals. How does bricks pull on this? Do you want to comment on that?
2: Brics?
1: Uh, do you know about that?
2: That doesn't pull up into my mind right now. I'm sure it's an acronym for something else that I'm familiar with, but um, he also said FDIC.
1: He said FDIC. I thought was zero requirements. Now wasn't that passed, or am I misinformed? So you commented already
3: on the reserve.
2: Yeah, you know what? uh, That does. He just he did just uh, jog my memory on that, and I think he may be correct on that. But still, like I said, most banks don't go down to that anyway. Um. So, yes, he did jog my memory on that. Um, okay. And I, I do think he's correct.
1: All right. I'm trying to see. Oh, Mark Perry was commenting money and currency is different. That was in the middle of some of Alex's comments here. And then, all right, um, Keith said, outstanding explanation, Bruce. I think that was on, I can't remember which explanation that was. Um, and the art of ancient Egyptian metaphysics says all of this will be saved for truth. So uh, thank you. <laughs> All right. So Bruce, I think we've covered, um, did you want to mention anything about bailouts versus bail-ins or, or we want to save that for another conversation?
2: I think uh, we'll say positive.
1: Okay. All right. So let's hear your calming thoughts about this. And um, one, thing, one thing before you do, I want to point out, it's very important. I think the biggest lesson we can learn from this whole thing is that banks, you. Any organization, any business is in the same position. You need liquid capital that you can access. And life insurance is a powerful tool to allow you to have that liquidity and be able to access capital when you need it. And so that is something that we maybe didn't even talk about very much in this show, but I would really want to make sure that you take away from this that make sure your capital is not all tied up in assets that can't be liquidated or that you might have to sell at a loss. You want to be in a position of liquidity, and specifically, using whole life insurance is a is a wonderful way to do that. Go ahead, Bruce.
2: Yeah. So um, I found it interesting when since and this has only been going on for about a week. How many people now are what I would call fear mongering? You know, um, you have to get uh, your money out of the bank and get it into the life insurance contracts, and I think that's great. But I don't think you have to do it because uh, I tell people all the time, you have to have 15-minute mo- money,
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know, money
2: that you can get to very quickly. I, you also I, have to
1: have money you're storing somewhere to be able to pay your premiums with before it gets into the life insurance. So we all have a very good,
2: That's a good point. And then I always ask this question to people all the time is, what is your floor to your bank account that you feel comfortable? With? And what is your ceiling where you think, oh, that's too much money in there? And it's different for everybody. Some people say, well, if it gets down to $1,000 in my checking account, I'm a little nervous. Other people say, if it gets down to $50,000, yeah. I get nervous. I've seen people with $200,000 in the bank because they say they just want that to be there that they know that everything's okay. So.
1: Well, and it depends on how much expenses you have going out every month. It depends on how big your business is, how what your. Capital is in your family as well, so um, there's definitely reasons for that amount to be different. Yes,
2: yes. So uh, and and uh, so the life insurance industry is taking is taking this, and some people in the life insurance agency are really jumping on this and saying, "See, I told you all these banks were going to fail. Get your money out of the banks." I think there's some very specific reasons why these couple of banks have failed. And I'm not sure anybody's going to be hurt by it, including the investors when it's all said and done. So do we still think that life insurance is a great place to store your money? Yes. Cause there's a lot of different benefits from it, but I don't think you should be making these decisions on, um, on fear. So here are Absolutely. the ways to overcome. Here are the ways to overcome your fear. First of all, you have to understand that you are your greatest asset. So you shouldn't be worrying about oh my goodness, I'm going to lose all my money, and I'm never going to have the same life again. Why not? I mean, if you're your greatest asset, you can figure out a way to make more money. You can become marketable, get another job, so on and so forth. So, if you are your your greatest asset, then you should read and listen and inform yourself like you're doing today on the podcast. Congratulations. Uh, Secondly, I think, just like I said before, you need to build a war chest or a, a fund that you feel comfortable with that can take the fear away from you. So, whatever that fund is and where you store it, if you don't believe in banks and, you, and that's part of your fear, then maybe storing it in high cash value life insurance is the way to go for you. Um, Dr. Wade Fowle, who we've, we've had on the show a couple of times, he actually talks about this in a well diverse portfolio. The third thing is, think positive. But don't just think positive. Surround yourself with people who say and do positive things in your life. And I think a good rule of thumb is, do you feel comfortable sharing your positive accomplishments with that person? Because a lot of people aren't comfortable sharing positive things with a particular person. because that person's reaction is always, well, it's good now, but just wait, it'll it'll turn. Mm-hmm. Those are not positive people. So if you feel like you cannot even share positive things with a person, don't hang around then. And then the final thing I say is remember negative headlines and cl- clickbait on social media sells. Many people will jump onto this and they're gonna try to scare you into changing into something. So, use yourself as your greatest asset. Read, listen, and inform yourself, and then decide whether you want to reposition your money from the banks to an insurance company so that you can sleep better at night.
1: I love that you ended on that strong note, Bruce. And it is so true that you, listener, you are your greatest asset. And we've talked about that a long time ago. And it's been a while since we brought up that idea on the show. That was coming out of, the, um, out of the archives. That's awesome. I think most people don't realize that. And we think our money is the thing that we need to protect. Really, you need to protect yourself, protecting your mind, staying in a position of making good decisions by being abundance thinking and not in scarcity and fear and worry. So Bruce, thank you for just so much value that you were able to share today not only just about the the facts and situation but how to think about that and thank you for leading us to a positive ending note so if you are listening to this today and you still have questions you have thoughts you have something that you want to ask us in a public format because this is something that you're interested in you can put a comment into the video even after you're watching so this is on LinkedIn on Facebook on YouTube, on Twitter, I think as well. So if you would like to ask a question, you can do that. You can also email us at hello at com. That would be if you have a question that's maybe something a little more in depth or more personal or something that you would like to have a more extensive answer than just a quick comment that we can provide back in a social media setting. Thirdly, if you're in a position where you're saying, I'm really resonating with what you're sharing right now and I want to be in a position of safety and I am I like what you guys are saying and I want to be making changes in my financial life. You can do that by going to themoneyadvantage.com and you can click on the button on the front page that asks you to book a call. And that call is an opportunity for you to get on the phone, get on a Zoom call actually, face-to-face with one of our advisors and really talk through your financial situation and say, Here's what's happening. Here's my goals. Here's what I want to do. Here's what, I, what I'm working with. And we are able to put together a strategy for you to maximize and optimize your financial life so that you have the best outcomes. And if you are open to that, if you're wanting that conversation, you can do that by booking a call at themoneyadvantage.com. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for your comments. Um, Thank you, Jose. I see you saying thank you for the great work. He had a comment earlier as well, thanking us. So just thank you for everyone who's been joining in live and for just sharing your thoughts. And we hope to see you next time. And in the meantime, remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd. And build a life and business you love. We'll see you next time.